Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit litbreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. Litbreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult, romance, and other book genres. That's the Litbreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is two human beings attempting to reach an understanding. This is thousands of human beings eavesdropping on a phone conversation. Thank you for being here. Uh, my name is Brad Listy, and I'm sitting in Los Angeles. And uh, just a few minutes ago, I was I was outside. I was standing out of doors and the sun was uh, beating down upon me. The desert sun. And uh, as this was happening, it occurred to me that the sun will kill you. It will destroy you. It is the giver of life, and yet uh, it will burn you and give you cancer. <laughs> Have I talked about this before? This makes me feel uh, depressed. I feel depressed thinking about this as a uh, pasty white man on planet Earth. The lethal nature of the sun, the fact that it gives you cancer and it makes you uncomfortable in the summertime, it just seems like an especially dismal aspect of our collective reality. 
So that's one thing that's been bothering me today. Uh, Another thing that's been bothering me is a trend that I've noticed recently in my dealings with people, and in particular with friends of mine. So uh, I'll try to explain quickly. Uh, The other day I was having a drink uh, here in town with a friend, and we were discussing life. Uh, We were discussing work and how to make it in life and how to be successful in your work. And we were talking about stress and success and failure and, you know, all of the regular uh, existential subject matter that we often find ourselves entertaining uh, as we sit around talking with friends and we sit around uh, attempting to exist. So there I was, uh, and I was talking about uh, my particular trials and tribulations uh, of the moment. And as this was happening, my friend suddenly interrupted me and said to me, uh, hey, you know what? I don't worry about you. I don't worry about you one bit. Uh, I know that good things are going to happen. Or something to that effect. And uh, it made me feel good initially. I appreciated it. Uh, I said, thank you. Thank you for the good thoughts. And, uh, you know, from there, the conversation sort of veered off into more pedestrian territory. And pretty soon our time was up. Uh, We left the restaurant. Not, Not that we were on a timer, but you know what I'm saying. Our time together reached its conclusion. And we went outside. We parted company. And as I was driving home... Uh, I was reflecting on the conversation and uh, this exchange in particular where my friend told me that he doesn't worry about me. And suddenly, uh, (laughs) suddenly it occurred to me that this sentiment, which on the surface seems very positive, uh, might actually be not so positive. And more to the point, I realized that I hear this a lot. People tell me this all the time. Like, does this ever happen to you? Or is this something that's specific to me? Because when I think about it, I realize that uh, people often tell me that they're not worried about me at all. Which makes me wonder, you know, what does it really mean? Is it a heartfelt expression of support and unguarded optimism? Or is it instead a kind of clever... And maybe even passive-aggressive way of saying, uh, leave me alone. Or, uh, I'm not going to worry about you. (laughs) I'm not worried about you. You're going to be fine. I just know it. I'm not worried about you at all. So, I guess what I'm trying to say here is, uh, please worry about me. Uh, I'm worth worrying about. I need your concern. Do you own a radio empire? Do you want to syndicate this program nationally and pay me an exorbitant salary? Uh, If so, please contact me at uh, letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, 
based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Domenica Ruda. Uh, she has a new memoir out called With or Without You, which is really wonderful. And we had a very, very good conversation but before we get there, I want to share with you a brief interview that I conducted with the one and only Jessica Anya Blau. Uh, longtime listeners of this podcast may recall that Jessica uh, was my guest in episode six. Episode six, way back when, at the dawn of other people. Uh, and you can listen to that episode in full uh, via the official Other People app with a premium subscription. It's worth doing. It was a great episode. Jessica is so fun to talk with. And she has a new novel out from Harper Perennial called Wonder Bread Summer. The Wonder Bread Summer. It's hilarious and uh, it's very smart and it is generating uh, a lot of buzz. So here she is. This is me talking with the wildly talented and very lovely Jessica Anya Blau. <laughs> Uh, okay, so congratulations on the new novel. And uh, Nick, Nick Hornby just wrote like a glowing review for The Believer. We should talk about that. Yeah, that was intense. That was so great. Yeah. It was like, I don't think I've ever had a review that great for anything. Well, and yeah, was, it was like a really, like, really warm embrace of the book. He spoke of it and really, I mean, you could tell he really loved it, but right. um, it's also like maybe an influential review. Like, do you feel like it's going to help? sell books uh i hope so i mean who 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 knows i mean i do i do hope so i mean it would be nice i mean i i i want books to sell because i want to be able to keep writing so the more that sell the more i can just keep writing yeah you know? so i would like you know yeah i just want to keep writing so whatever gets me there would be great okay and so before we came on uh the air so to speak um, you alluded to a paraplegic uh, porn producer who makes an appearance in the book, but who actually is based on someone in real life. Is that right? Yeah. Well, in the book, there's a there's a paraplegic. Wait, is quadri quadriplegics all four right? All four limbs. So I think it's quadriplegic. So in the book, there's a quadriplegic porn producer who can't speak, and he has like a head pointer, like a you know, like a little rubber-tipped pointer on, attached to his forehead, and there's like a Ouija board across the arms of his wheelchair with words on it, you know, like yes, no, maybe, and the alphabet. So, and he talks by dropping his head on words. And so that guy in the book is this porn producer that Allie, the protagonist, runs into when she's on the lamb with a Wonder Bread bag full of cocaine. 
And so just as unbelievable as these things are, they're actually based on real life, which is, first of all, a guy ran into my apartment once with a Weber's bread bag full of cocaine. So that's where I got the bread bag. And secondly, I once worked for a Coke dealer when I thought I was working for, uh, I thought I was selling dresses, but it was really a Coke deal. And the third thing is, actually, it's the third and the fourth thing is, I used to work at this little cafe in Berkeley, and this woman would roll this quadriplegic over to sit next to me, and he had a beard, and she would give me his cappuccino, and I would feed his, him his cappuccino while he, while I studied, and he just sat there, and he had the head pointer on the Ouija board, and he would talk through that. And he was a really nice guy. I mean, you know, we barely talked. I mean, he would, I would try to do yes or no questions because it took a long time. <laughs> well, wait, like, and, and so i got to stop you. Like, when you say, like, the Ouija board and the head pointer and he's using his head, like, is he physically, like, forehead to Ouija board, like, tapping answers? Or is it like a well, laser? Well, no, the pointer was, like, think of, like, a unicorn's horn. So he only had to get the horn down on the word. Okay. But he's physically tapping this. He has, like, a pointer coming off his forehead. And then he's physically tapping that, dropping his head, and the pointer would land on either letters to spell a word or certain words like yes, no, maybe. And so, and you would have to sit there and like watch where the pointer was and then spell the words. Yeah, but it was sort. It was a little like playing Wheel of Fortune. Like you'd get three <laughs> letters and you would try and finish the sentence. You'd be like, "You want another cappuccino?" You know, I mean, you would just try. Like it's beautiful out. To, like you were constantly trying to get it because. Because the other thing is, is you know, this is when I was in college, and so the, when I was sitting in this cafe, I was usually studying, and you know how it is. It's like you're on, you have so much work to do, and it was like there isn't really. I mean, even though you waste so much time in college, there isn't time for like 15 minutes for a single sentence. Like you just don't, you know. So it's like you try. I tried to keep it to yes and no, but. Either way, this guy was incredibly nice, and I would, didn't mind him sitting there. My friends would come and sit with me and whatever, and we'd all sit there, and he'd just be sitting there, and he would laugh. He would, like, squeal and make noises, but he couldn't speak. And, you know, like, maybe a year or two goes by. You know, I'm like, I always go to this cafe because I live near it. And his wife came up one day, and she said, um, I didn't want to say his name, but she said, you know, he wants to know if you want to be in one of his movies. And I said, what do you mean, be in one of his movies? And she said, well, he makes movies. And he wants you to be in his movie. And I said, what do, you, what do you mean he makes movies? She said, well, he's a director. You didn't know that? And I said, no, I didn't know he was a director. <laughs> she said, yeah, he directs movies. And I said, well, what kind of movies? Like, what what would I do in the movie? And she said, well, you would, I mean, they're erotic movies, and you would probably have sex. <laughs> and then I said, who would I have sex with him? And she said, yeah, you would have sex with him, and maybe with me and with some of my friends. And I said, oh, okay, well, can I think about it? And she said, sure, why don't you think about it and get back to us? And then she gave me, like, a little flyer that was, like, showed where I could see their movies. I said, okay, let me just think about it. And, of course, I wasn't going to do it, but I was just like, oh, you know, I mean, I couldn't wait to get home and tell my friends. It was like, you know, like, in my head, I was like, oh, my God, screaming the oh, my God. You know, and then the next time I saw her, I was like, you know, I just, I don't think I want to do it. And she's like, okay, you know, and, you know, and, I, I must say and point out to the general public that I later saw one of their Oh, they got an NEA grant to make their movies, and I saw one of the movies. And so they're not porn as we think of it. They were making, like, erotic films about eroticism and love. So, so my porn producer in my book is not based on this guy because these people weren't making porn. They weren't making money off it. They were creating art, but their art was... Um, 
the art they created was movies of people having sex with him and her. So, however you want to take that. So, um, and in the, you know, and I saw one, and when he had sex, he's essentially kind of lying on a bed, spasming, and people are kind of maneuvering onto him. There's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, so that's one. So in my book, I created this powerful mega industry, more like um, Larry Flint. Right. porn producer, but who also has a head pointer and a Ouija board. All right, so the other thing that that character was inspired by, I can't say based because it's really not based on these people at all, it's just inspired by them, is that around that same time when I was 20, my roommate started dating, my 20-year-old roommate, I think maybe she was 19 or something, started dating this 40-year-old lawyer, which kind of grossed me out. You know, even though he had like had all his hair and he was thin and he was fine, it was still like kind of yucky. So, you know, and then he would take us both out to a bar and he would say to people, you know, these two girls together don't equal my age. And I thought, really? It was really (laughs) creepy. So I didn't have a boyfriend at the time. And he really wanted to set me up with like some lawyer, corporate, whatever, you know, and, and I was always, no, 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 no. And then finally, once my girlfriend was like, look, we're going to this Mexican restaurant, and I love Mexican food because I'm from California, and you probably love it too now, Brad, because you live in L.A. where there's the best Mexican food in the world. Sure. So, you know, I love Mexican. He's like, we're going to this great restaurant. And they were going to, like, this incredible Mexican restaurant in Berkeley. And she's like, just come. He wants to set you up with this guy, but he says it's a really interesting guy. He's super smart, super successful, and you'll love him. And I'm like, okay, whatever. I'm, like, going for the Mexican food because I'm, like, dirt poor and you know, eating frozen yogurt for days on end or something. So so she and I show up for this date, and it's a blind date for me and her boyfriend, and we walk in this Mexican restaurant, and we go to the table, and there's her boyfriend, and there is a middle-aged, bald, pink-faced, overweight man in a wheelchair. <laughs> that was my blind date. And I'm, I was 20 years old at the time. And I just remember thinking, like... Okay, I'm sure this is a great man. I'm sure he's like a valuable person, and I'm sure there are people who he should be loved, and I want him to be happy. But I'm like 20 years old and like, you know, wanting to live in Paris and whatever. You know how where we are at 20. Like, this is. This is so kind of freaked me out. But anyway, so I come and I'm like, oh, okay, great. So I go on this blind date. We get there, and the lawyer boyfriend is like ordering pitchers of beer, and this guy is just. So trash, so quickly, and somebody told me later that when you're a quadriplegic or paraplegic, you get drunk really fast because of the way, I, I don't know, <laughs> sitting there, I don't know what. Well, you can't process, you can't, like, I mean, if you're not moving around, it's probably harder to, to metabolize. Is that what it is? I don't know. Yeah, I'm okay, guessing. so it's something like that. Anyway, this guy is so trash, like mid-dinner, that I'm, I'm not kidding you, his head is like falling towards his plate and we're catching it with our hand and <laughs> pushing him back. And this is my blind date. So anyway, these two experiences, the really nice guy who made the erotic naked films in Berkeley and this blind date, and the idea of uh, Larry Flint, I, I created this fictional character who's not based on anything, but inspired by them, who is a quadriplegic porn producer speaks with a head point.
pointer on the Ouija board, and that's one of the characters in the book. Well, this is what this is it, folks. Uh, this is how great literature is made, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> well, it's uh, it's it's very it's very funny, and um, I'm very happy for you with this new book. So I wish you the best of luck with it, and I'm Thanks. glad I'm glad we got a chance to talk. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you, and uh, I love the other people thing. What do you call it? Podcast. That's great. Right. Thank you so much. Great. All right. Take care. Okay, so there she is. That's Jessica Anya Blau. Uh, go get her new novel. It's called The Wonder Bread Summer, and it's available now from Harper Perennial. Just do it. You'll like it. Uh, Jessica is every bit as charming on the page as she is in conversation. So uh, having said that, we now uh, transition elegantly to the main event, my conversation with Domenica Ruda. Her, new, her, her uh, new memoir, With or Without You, is now available from Spiegel and Growl. It's an unbelievable story. And uh, I'm very pleased to have her here on the program. I think you're going to enjoy uh, our conversation. So here she is, folks. This is the lovely and talented Domenica Ruta. And her new memoir, once again, is called With or Without You. My decision to move to Brooklyn was um, I wanted to get away from my family but not be so far away that if something happened, uh, it would be really, really um, difficult for me to get back to them. I, and New York was sort of the obvious choice. Um, I can't, re you know, I don't, I refuse to pay for Manhattan prices, so I chose Brooklyn. And uh, I hear there's lots of writers in Brooklyn. I'm not friends with any of them. Um, all my good friends that I talk to on a daily basis are social workers and therapists and teachers and, and carpenters and things like that. Um, event planners. Um, so I, I, I hear there's a literati in Brooklyn. I, I've not been invited to the brunch yet. Um, but that's fine with me. So, okay. Yeah. Cause I was going to say like, is that like an active choice of yours? No, no, it just, no, I just, um, you know, I think I'm slowly, slowly the literary New York world is opening up to me, but, um, it's something, it feels more like work, you know, like I'll go to some event or some party or, you know, like some Paris review event or some Penn American event and they're lovely events. I'm not disparaging them. They're wonderful. And the people who put them on are wonderful. and The people who go to them are wonderful. But, um, at the end of the day, you know, the people I talk to on a daily basis are not other writers. Um, that's just sort of how it's worked out. And it's, I don't know, I'm happy with it. Okay. And so writers can be insufferable. Like I, I live in my own head so much. I don't want to talk to the people who do that too. Well, and that's the thing too, is that cause I'm sort of the same way. I mean, I guess I have a lot of friends that are writers and I, you know, I talk to people on this show all the time and I, I know a lot of writers and I, I love a lot of them, but, um, I think that maybe there's something stifling about constantly being immersed in it. And I think there's something healthy about having friends who don't do art, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's a breath of fresh air to use a horrible cliche. And, um, and there's, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm running out of, yeah. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Cut that out. So, um, your book, yes. uh, you know, it's a memoir. It, it, it's a recovery memoir. Is that I mean like they use all these terms? Like, do you feel that these terms are reductive? Like, how would you describe your book? I do. I feel they're reductive, but at the same time, you know, they the good people in charge need to find a way to label things so they can market things, and that's something that I'm not good at, and they are. So I trust them to do that. Um, I see it as a um, 
I mean, I, I guess it, some people call it a mother-daughter memoir, that that's a whole genre of memoir. Some people call it a recovery memoir um, or survival memoir. Um, <laughs> I, I guess uh, I, I, I like to, I just hope people see it as literary nonfiction. Um, but yeah, I mean, definitely it's, it's about recovery in a, in a grander, more abstract sense. I mean, yeah, there's recovery from drugs and alcohol, but it's also recovery from childhood, from trauma, from Catholic school, from bad relationships, you know, it's in the, the stuff that sort of litters everybody's life. Well, I mean, and you had, I mean, you had a uncommonly rich, I guess, from a literary perspective, uh, upbringing. I mean, your mother as a, I mean, as a reader, your mother as a character is, uh, incredible, you know? And I, I guess like, because it's a, it's a real person, this is your real mother. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's, is it hard for you to have people talk about her or read reviews where people are talking about her in that way because there's so much complexity both in her character, uh, in who she is, but also in your relationship with her uh, and your relationship with other people in your family and in the relationship that you have, you know, looking back on your own childhood. Because, you know, what I found myself um, doing as I was reading is like at, at turns I would be sort of like I would recoil you know, at, at certain moments and be like, Oh my God. And then not that long after I'd find myself, uh, touched, like there'd be like a real sweetness. So it's very complicated. And I think you do a good job of rendering that. Yeah. It's interesting. People have, um, really mixed reactions. Some people, and I, I, this, I love this reaction. Some people say, if your mother wasn't so fucked up, I'd totally want to be your friend, you know? And to me, I take that, like, I I take, as a writer, I take that as a compliment, like, okay, then that means I've really shown, you know, this light that she had inside her because that, that was there and I could see it. And it was my deepest fear that in writing this book, people wouldn't see, see what I saw, which was this really damaged, really complicated, really sick, crazy woman who did have this spark in her that was attractive, you know, unfortunately it was also incendiary, but, um, you know, and so I love when people say that, um, you know, other people will tell me like, will say things like your mother was such a monster. I can't even believe you survived that. And that, that I don't take as, that doesn't sit as well because I, I feel like what I've done in trying to write this book is to show that, you know, she was a complex being. And so it's good to hear you say that. Um, uh, that, you know, that you, you got the complexity of it, that, you know, she wasn't just this evil, she wasn't just the archetypal terrible mother, but she wasn't the self-suffering victim either. She, you know, she made choices. Um, you know, yeah, you know, that all of that is there and that she also was this hilarious person that was, you know, was really funny and would, you know, we could watch a, an old movie and she'd make a joke about Betty Gibbons and say, oh, you little slut, you know, and that, like that was funny or that we, we'd watch Woody Allen movies together and she, you know, in that special moment in um, Annie Hall when he says, my Grammy never knit me scarves, she was too busy getting raped by Cossacks and that we got how funny that was. And that, that was, <laughs> you know, that, there was this dark sense of humor that we had these, we had these moments and then there were, there were truly dark moments too, in which... You know, I was like hiding in my bedroom, hoping that she wouldn't kill me and that all of that rolled up into one made our life together. Yeah. And, um, do you have a sense of where, like the source of her pain, do you know what I'm saying? Like what, how do you, how do you trace it back? Like to, you know, all the drug use and drug abuse 
Right. And like the really mercurial behavior, like, do you have a, a, a psychological grasp on that? And then do you also have a, uh, a grasp on it from the perspective of family history? Yeah. I mean, I have, I have lots of different interpretations of that. Um, uh, one of them is one of them, and this is going to sound really grandiose and I don't care cause I love it. Um, Ann Carson, um, who is a prophet who happens to live in our world, um, uh, is, uh, she has in one of her little interstitial bits in, um, uh, grief lessons, which is her, uh, interpretation slash translation of Euripides plays, um, says this thing about heroes and myths are pe- are just people who've gotten too big for their own lives. Um, and so in a lot of ways, and this is totally my own megalomania trying to, you know, if, I, if I'm so important, I must come from important people. Seeing my mother as this mythic hero and that she got, that she was a woman who was born into this world, was born into this body, was born into this life, and she was just too big for it all. And that that, like, running up against that was a central conflict in her life. Um, that's, what, that's how I feel about her when I'm feeling romantic. Um, when I'm feeling more pragmatic, I see, uh, you know, uh, with this healthy distance and maturity, I see her as someone who suffers from a spiritual autoimmune disease. Um, and I think that she, you know, and that takes the form in her case, not just of, uh, like opiate addiction, but also just her, her craziness, her rage and her, and her ups and her highs and lows and her ability to, you know, on the one hand, turn a bankrupt small town suburban cab company into a, a multi-million dollar enterprise, a woman who could, you know, tear down a house that was essentially a crack house and build this beautiful, you know, million dollar home in its place. And also the same woman who could lose all of that and who could lose her daughter and who could, who could, you know, just absolutely turn, uh, you know, like this beautiful body into this wretched, um, pile of, you know, pile of bones and skin. And, um, and that, you know, and that is by spiritual autoimmune disease and that she, you know, her, something inside of her mind or soul or heart, I don't, you know, I don't, I kind of don't care which of those elements makes the most sense to you. Like pick and pick which one makes sense. Um, there was something in her that needed to destroy herself and by consequence, everything around her that was good in the way that like, you know, someone with, fibromyalgia, you know, like the body will attack perfectly healthy tissue. Well, in her case, it would attack perfectly healthy instincts, you know, of self-preservation and survival. Um, and that she would do the opposite of what she needed to do to be well and to be healthy and to be happy. And so it's that. And then also, you know, in terms of family lineage, and I, I got to be careful what I talk about so I don't get sued. I, I will say this: we come from a long line of alcoholics, drug addicts, and mentally ill people, and it goes back many generations. Um, and so, you know, in, in, in some ways, it's like there's poison swimming in the root of blood, <laughs> and I've definitely inherited it. Um, but, you know, but I, I, I like to steer away from that because it sounds like an excuse, you know, like, oh, we were born this way. It's like, well, no, we also had some choices, too. Well, I was going um, to ask you, like, like, where do you come down on the line between nature and nurture? Do you know what I'm saying? Like when both. It's 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 so totally both. It's you know, um, like I I've I've done a lot of thinking about this. You know, I'm a sober woman now. I don't I don't drink. I don't do drugs. And that's some days that's really awesome and wonderful. And some days it's like the hardest thing in the world. Um, but uh, you know, I have come to the conclusion that it, like let's just say 
Um, and I've done this many times, like imagined my alternative life. Like what if I did get adopt, put up for adoption at birth or what if foster care did come in and remove me from my home and put me in with this nice family, like that I've imagined in my head. Um, I think I still would have become like a crazy psycho alcoholic drug addict because I think it was just inside me to do that. Like I had to make my own mess and I had to learn, but I also had to learn how to clean it up on my own too. And, you know, I consider myself really, really lucky that I, I wanted to clean up my own mess because not everybody who is born with or develops um, like this kind of mania wants to get better. And um, so that's like a, that's a real gift that I, that I, I don't, I, that I, I really can't explain where that came from. I was going to say, why did you want to clean it up? Whereas other people don't, do I don't know. I don't know. That's like the, one of the fundamental mysteries of living with addiction. Like why me? Why not everybody? Um, you know, I, I could, I could get really, really lofty and say, you know, it's grace, um, that would probably put off a lot of your listeners, but, um, I, I don't, so I'll just say it's a mystery. I don't know. I have no idea. All I know is that I'm lucky and I'm grateful and I do everything I can every day to, um, keep that working for me in my life. Well, sure. And I, I mean, and am I correct in saying that as you were writing this book, you were also in the process of just getting sober? Like they, co- yeah. they, co- <laughs> they coincided. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I got to say in the first, the first couple of months of getting sober, there was no writing happening. There was no journaling. There was no reading. Like I would try, I, and just to recap, um, you know, when I was first getting sober, I was unemployed. I'd won $17,000 from, I was a finalist for this writing prize and, Texas called the Keen Prize for Literature. I didn't win, but I was a finalist, which gave me 17 grand. And so I had this amazing moment in which I had a little, a little bit of money and I didn't need to have a job. And so like I could just, and I didn't, so I could focus on just getting sober. That was my full-time job. And I would try, you know, I would have whole days in which I could have written a lot and I couldn't, I mean, I couldn't, I'd look at a page and the words wouldn't would be blurry and wouldn't stay they wouldn't stay in the lines. I was just so my brain couldn't focus. So in very early sobriety, no, I was not writing anything, let alone writing a book. But then as the fog cleared, um, I had some I had some writing I had been doing about a, a memoir thing that I was playing with. I didn't I didn't really want to write a memoir. I didn't want to commit to being a memoirist or writing a memoir. But I did have these nonfiction prose pieces. Like that's what I called it. That was my big excuse. Um, that I picked up again after a couple of months of sobriety and looked at, and then, and then it became this obsessive task. Like I, it was all I could do every day was work on the memoir. I find that yeah. in, I find that so interesting. And so, uh, just to be clear, like when you were getting sober, it was alcohol. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, I did drugs, but really, I, drugs were something I could pick up and put down. You know, like I could quit doing drugs on my own, and it wasn't that big a deal. It was booze. It was totally. Yeah, it was alcohol that I was I was recovering from. So it can, is that possible within the context of addiction that you can like, it's just one thing. Like I, I always figured that like, if you're an alcoholic, it's like anything like, so yeah, yeah, no, I, I can't do anything in safety. Like I can't, eat, I, I can't even eat donuts in safety. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it's insane. Like I have to be so, so, so careful with sugar and caffeine even. Um, although I do have both of those things in my life, but yeah, no, totally. Um, I mean, it's, everyone's recovery is different and there are some, I know some heroin addicts that say, Oh no, it's cool. I can still drink because it was heroin was my problem. And you know, and I, I try to withhold judgment and just shut my mouth and say, okay, it, that's, that's your, that's your journey. That's nothing I can, I can't tell you what to do, but for me, that doesn't work. I, um, but like what, what I'm talking about in terms of detoxing and really recovering, it was, um, 
it was it was alcohol that was my biggest demon. Okay, and then I, I was reading an interview with you, and you were talking about um, years when you were still drinking in graduate school, I believe. Um, and you were writing, I think this is like, as you were sort of circling your memoir, um, or toying with these nonfiction prose pieces that, you know, you were just talking about and Mm -hmm. you you were writing, uh, short stories about like Connecticut divorce in like the mold of (laughs) John Cheever. Right. Yeah. I I totally wanted to be John Cheever. Right. I wanted these, these acrobatic sentences (laughs) that were, you know, and, and that were full of full of light and, and, and sex and, and infidelity. And, <laughs> yeah. Well, but I know, but I, I think it's, so, I, I, the reason I, I bring it up is that it strikes at something that I think is so common for writers where we have this story and it's ours and it's the thing we're supposed to write. And it's, you know, if we ever really talk to somebody who had any good sense, it would probably be obvious in five minutes, you know, to them at least. Right. But we have this thing that we need to say, and for some reason we go off in these other directions, and we try to like put on these different masks and like you know like write these stories that have no like direct line necessarily to our personal right like to, to like to the heart of us. Do you know what I'm saying? It's just interesting. Yeah. It's interesting how we do that. Well, I think it's partly you know in in one way it's running away from from your own life through fiction, which is I mean we do that. I do that as a reader. Why not do that as a writer? Um, I also have a genuine fascination with um, subsets of the culture that are so different from mine, you know, and um, and I and I, I I do enjoy feeling like an anthropologist in these worlds and of of you know the like Connecticut divorce fiction or um, yeah or you know or whatever like Texas gunslingers and things like that and just sort of going into these other worlds and observing them and uh, it's fascinating um but you know but for me in terms of writing at that at least at that point in in my writing career um it was it was avoidance um and it was it was and it was insecurity i i didn't feel that my story was was worth telling and i didn't feel like anyone would really want to hear it and uh and i certainly didn't want to sit down and look at it Okay. So, but then once you get sober and your head starts to clear, um, mm-hmm. the memories start to come back a little bit. Like, did you really, mm-hmm. I mean, I think I read that as well in the interview that like your memory actually improved, which makes some sense, but yeah, uh, did, things, yeah. did things come up that surprised you where you're like, Oh my God, I'd forgotten about that. Like, had you, Oh done- yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. That, that happened all the time. Um, you know, I would, it was, it, it's really, it's really intense. It's this whole spiritual somatic experience in recovery and that I'd literally be walking down the street with my dog and I would be thunderstruck with a memory. I mean, it would hit me. It, you know, it would, I would travel it would like pass through my body like lightning and it would be so powerful. And, you know, these are like um, and simple emotions that you'd think, you know, I should have been over. I should, you know, I should have processed by now. It would hit me in this totally new way. Um, and not, you know, not always bad, like sometimes joyous things. Like I'd remember things that my mother said and how much we laughed about it. And it would just sort of pop up in my head unprompted by anything in my surroundings. You know, just, it was sort of like my brain, um, having little earthquakes and, um, and I'd run home and I'd write them down, you know, as best I could. And then I just, I, you know, I'm a big, uh, I have lots of I have a whole system of notebooks and, you know, and I would sort of go to whatever notebook I could get at first and write it down and then just sort of trust like, well, eventually this will find its way into the right chapter. I don't know where yet. Okay. Yeah. Cause I was going to ask you about the process. Like, so you were, you were, you had your notebooks, you're filling them up with like, you're jotting down memories, anything that pops mm-hmm. through your brain and mm-hmm. in no particular order. 
Right. And then when you actually like set about to write the memoir, you know, proper, like mm-hmm. you have your notebook open next to you, or you reference, you're using those notes as as kind of uh, stars to steer by and grabbing mm-hmm. things from them as you go. That was pretty much how it worked. That's pretty much how it worked. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and I, I again, I feel really lucky that uh, a structure emerged really organically right from the start that happened to work out, you know, um, because when I sold the book, you know, I worked on the book for about three years, totally by myself, just me, a laptop and a dream. <laughs> and, and, um, and then I sold the book and, and I was fully expecting my editor to say, okay, this is great, but let's completely rewrite it from page one and restructure it and make it more chronological. And she was digging it. She liked the structure. And, um, you know, and it was one of those things like, I didn't really understand what it was I was doing until after I had done it. Um, okay, so this is this brings up a really interesting question. Like not only from the perspective of memoir, from, but from the perspective of narrative more broadly, because mm-hmm. structure's tough sometimes, you know. And like, how do we yeah. do things? And like, you know, there can be a lot of false starts, and there can be a lot of going back and you know rejiggering. And when you have to rejigger the structure of a book, it can be a pretty traumatic exercise. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know, there's something that. Uh, I'm so sorry. Someone's buzzing on my door. I think it's a delivery. I'm so sorry. Hold on a second. That's all right. Yeah. Um, I should, I should, I, this is so horrible. Oh, my dog's barking. I'm really, really sorry. But I'm doing a juice cleanse, which is just like the worst Brooklyn Park Slope thing ever for no, like a right. woman. I'm but I am totally doing it. And so like the, like the dude's delivering the juice and usually my super takes it. But for, oh my God, shut up, Daisy. I'm trying to sound like a smart writer. Um <laughs> Uh, I'm gonna. It, leave, you realize I'm gonna leave this in. I love. Ha- oh my god! No, yeah, no, 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 I love. I love having all this sort of stuff in. This is part of the show. I like having real stuff happen. So, wait a minute. No, though. everyone's gonna think I'm an asshole who does juice cleanses. No, I, but I'll, I am. I'll go I on am. the record. I'll go on the record. I juice. I'm into it. And what, right. what's the name of the store? Is it the? Uh, it's, blue, it's called Blueprint Cleanse, and okay. I'm I'm on day three, and I'm like I'm that's I, I really didn't plan this right because I completely forgot that I was doing this interview. I tried to do math earlier today. I was trying to do a simple math problem, and I couldn't – I didn't know what 16 divided by 2 was. It took me a good 35 seconds to figure that out. Oh. Um, yeah, it was like it was just really, really hard. So my brain is not on um, – it's not working so well. Was well, it because but, because you're malnourished and you just because like, I'm so malnourished? Oh my god! <laughs> I took I'm, a three hour nap today just because I was like, oh my god, I'm so tired. No, yeah, no, I'm way into juicing. Like any basically any health related trend, I'm, in, I'm enormously. I know. I'm I fall extremely for it all. Yeah, everything. Yeah. I want I want to uh, live to be like 200 or something. I just exactly. I just want to live forever. I'm not asking a lot, <laughs> and I want to be able to you know walk my dog until I'm 200 years old without any kind of cane or apparatus. Right. And I just want to be beautiful and I want, and I just want everyone to love me. And I think that juicing is the way that will happen. Yeah. You're going to mean your skin, but you know, there's something to it. I feel feel good about it. You don't have to apologize in my presence. We have this in common, Dominica. All right. Good. Good. Um, Thank you. Yeah. But uh, just to circle back, you know, because I I, I think it's a point worth finishing is like with regard to structure, Mm. um, I read something because like I've always like one of the biggest questions I had when I was in graduate school was mm-hmm. how do you structure a novel? I was just, right. it sounds like such a silly thing to ask, but like I genuinely wanted someone to give me a good answer. It's like asking like, how do you make a marriage work? I mean, it's a silly <laughs> thing to ask, but right. we but, all are dying to know. Right, and, right. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I don't understand <laughs> what's happening. Ugh, Daisy, quiet. She's normally so quiet except for when buzzes, things buzz. Oh, that's how my dog is too. 
but she's in the book, so now she's now part of this interview. Yeah. There's a whole chapter about her in the book. It's a chapter that gets really that gets the most harsh criticism. You need to shut up. Okay, shut up. What, what kind of? Um. She's pretty wound up. What kind of dog is she? She. Uh, you'll get to this in the book. She is um, beagle, dachshund, terrier. Who knows what? Maybe German Shepherd. She's a mutt. She's a mix of things. Okay. But, yeah, and I, I should I should let listeners know that like uh what what am I I'm a little over halfway through your book at this point at the time of our conversation. Yeah, and you, so yeah, and so people don't like that. That's the thing is of I try not to read reviews, but I have heard of um, criticisms that people have made about my book, and one of them is that that the chapter about my dog is really sentimental, and I think that that's such a misread. It's just such a horrible misread. Um, but uh, I mean to go yeah. after they 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 went after the dog. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I, you had to attack. Someone had to. Somebody had to attack something, you know. Like I couldn't be this unimpeachable, like little traumatized little girl lost, turned, turned sober writer survivor. Some, you know, like which I'm, which I'm grateful for. I wouldn't want, you know, I didn't, I didn't want any pats on the back. Like, oh, look at her. She, she lived. Isn't that, isn't that a triumph? You know, I, I would, I wouldn't want people to read a book about trauma and then you know, I, I didn't want that I think and I think that happens you know that you become unimpeachable um if you've just survived life and everybody you know life is hard for everybody it's it's not about what you're telling for it's not about the story you're telling it's about how well you're telling it you know and so I'm I'm happy that someone criticized it it was like oh my god you went after my dog <laughs> yeah, right. just, if you're gonna <laughs> criticize you like it's like criticize me but don't criticize my dog right I know like, I like it, and thank god I'm a sober woman because I really if I wasn't if I was a drinker still I would have found that guy's address and stabbed him like <laughs> it, like not fatally but I would have like stabbed him in the cabs or something like that something really painful that would you know that wouldn't ruin his life but would really ruin his six weeks it would send a message and you know what it kind of reminds me of the scene in your book where your mother has the uh, what is it the the cr- bar or whatever to the windshield mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. um yeah i have that in me <laughs> yeah well you know you're thank t- god i i work i work really hard at curbing the impulses <laughs> on a daily basis so far good okay sorry hold on one second daisy shut your mouth <laughs> all right um, now now everything should be totally calm and serene. Yeah, we've now entered like the, this is like we're just rounding the curve into the second half of the show and things are going to get extremely zen and okay. um, Right. So I do I mean okay, so just to like in a really circuitous way finish this uh this question I sort of am trying to build up to with regard to the structure of your of your memoir and how mm-hmm. It worked. It like worked on the first try. Like your editor didn't come back and say this yeah. is me-. because and we should let listeners know that like the structure is not linear. Um, no. You're jumping back and forth in time. You know, you're spanning several years from chapter to chapter, depending on you know whichever way things go. But yet, it reads in a, in a fluid way. Like I don't, I, I didn't find anything that I've read hard to follow. Right. Um, and well, so, good. yeah. So when I was in graduate school, and I wanted this question answered, um, it was really hard, obviously, to get a straight answer or one that really satisfied me. But one of my professors handed out a ditto or some, you know, it was like a, a you know, stapled clump of papers that had mm-hmm. all sorts of different things written in it about writing. And one of the things uh, was like a, a short bit by Jack Kerouac. And I forget exactly what he said, but it was something like, if mind is shapely, art will be shapely. Mm. Which is to say that like, if you're writing from a place of presence, if you're writing from 
a place of like no fear, if you're not like hypercritical of the work while you're making the work and so on and so forth, then the structure that unfolds as a result of that high level of concentration will be solid. Uh, But if you're constantly second guessing yourself or you're, you know, you're sitting there on your own shoulder as the critic while you're doing it, then the, there's going to be holes in the boat, so to speak. Right. So my question, I guess, is that if you were just coming out of, um, an alcoholic fog, <laughs> uh, and you were sober for the first time in a long time and you had confronted something like that's pretty heavy, but yet you had kind of emerged from it and were starting to get some clarity. Like, do you feel like in the two or three years that you were working on the book in that state, you were in some sort of state of like heightened presence or fearlessness that allowed the structure to emerge like that? That's a one. That's an amazing question. I never, I've never thought of that before. I think I was, I was in a state of awakening. You know, it felt like early sobriety feels like waking up from a really long nightmare, um, or or getting up from a coma. You know, and so the whole world had this newness to it, and and that that took place on every level, even just you know like waking up in the morning and getting dressed and getting up and going out into the sunshine. Like that felt like a new experience for me in early sobriety. And so sitting down and writing in a lot of ways, I reinvented who I was as a person, which meant reinventing, reinventing who I was as a writer um, and reinventing who I was as a reader, as an editor. And so, yeah, there was a sort of hyper presence that was really blissful um, but, you know, also I was, you know, I was waking up to all of these feelings and a lot of the poison was leaching out of me. And so I really feel like I was getting in touch with a, a, a sense of love and joy for the world that I had been missing for so long because I was drowning myself in a chemical depressant, you know. Um, and um, so I feel like that also was sort of this, this, this light that um, was, was shining throughout as I was writing. Um, and, and I feel like, you know, that's, that's, a, I love that Kerouac quote. Um, I wish I'd heard that before. I think that's beautiful, but, um, and I agree with it, you know, and I, I feel like when you're writing from a place of, you know, if love is the opposite of fear, when you're writing from a place of love for yourself, for your characters, for your readers, um, for, for the world that you live in, for the world that you're creating, something good is going to come out of that. You know, it might not be what you wanted. It might not be what you expected. It might not be something sellable. It might not be something, that, you know, does well, but something good will come out of that. And then when you write from a place of fear, which I think I was doing a lot earlier um, in graduate school, um, you know, you'll have like the occasional startling moment where like, wow, I really pulled that sentence off. or I really nailed that scene, but nothing, I don't know, for me, nothing was really working. Okay. And when you talk about writing fearlessly, um, there are a couple things that come to mind. First of all, uh, you're, you're sharing some like really heavy stuff, like very personal stuff, uh, mm-hmm. not only about yourself, but about your family, like the kind of stuff that like at first blush, the average person probably wouldn't want the world to know, you know, right. like, like, yeah. for, like for example, um, and, and the, you know, I had like such a mixed response as I was saying earlier, because, um, there's like this horror at, at certain turns, like for example, like your mother, um, leaving you alone with a pedophile. Right. right. <laughs> um, but then at the same time, and, and then your mother, um, you know, uh, like working to put you through good school or working mm-hmm. to get the Christmas presents that you wanted, you know, extra shifts and, you mm-hmm. know, there's all these different things that are, that are happening, but you know, you're kind of laying it all down. And as you were doing it, were you thinking to yourself, I'm going to share this with the world? Or were you thinking like, I just need to 
get this down for me? Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, how did, yeah. you, how did you allow yourself the permission to do that so intimately and not let fear get in the way? Yeah. Um, I did th- for that, for this memoir, what I do for pretty much everything I write is I pretend that I'm dead and that nothing matters. Um, because <laughs> cause even when, even writing fiction, I'm so, I mean, even, which is not personal, it's all, it's, it's imaginary and it, it can't possibly offend anybody, although it always will offend somebody. Um, you know, there's just so much doubt and insecurity that every every sentence I'm creating is utter shit, you know, and that I'm an idiot and a moron and I'm a I'm a fool and every word I write is further proof of those facts. And and so, you know, the like to free myself of that, I just pretend, well, what if I was dead and it didn't matter? And that you know, and and that helps me with fiction, um, because my first drafts are awful, but then my first drafts are wonderful because they get me to my second draft. And nothing else could do that but a horrible first draft. Um, so, so there's that part that that there's that mindset that gets me through any writing that I do. Um, I also, you know, I I wrote this memoir really kind of naively, um, or or innocent, maybe not naive, innocently, just thinking, well, if this ever sees, if this book ever sees the light of day, if there, if this, if this book ever gets to be something that somebody else wants to read, um, who's not related to me. Um, that will be such a wonderful problem to have that I'm worried about other people having opinions about it. You know, I wrote it thinking no one's ever going to read this. This is, this is, you know, this is never going to, no one's ever going to buy this. No one's ever going to publish this. So write whatever I want and, and just don't worry about it. And if, if that proves to be untrue, that'll be an awesome problem to have. And I will face that problem when it comes. And I really, that was my mantra and it really worked, you know, up until, um, about a month before publication, I really wasn't, I was really sort of in the state of, okay, okay, no, you know, this, this is my book. And then about a month before publication, I realized, you know, I sort of had to come to terms with the fact like, well, this is my book, but I have family who need to read it. And this is my book, but this is a book is about to go out into the world and people are going to have reactions to it. And I, and I began to deal with it only then because otherwise I would have driven myself crazy. So I gave myself this really specific timeline, like up until, around pub date, I'm not going to worry about these things because it will make me sick and it won't make me um, be a good writer. It won't be, make me be a good represent, representative of the writing I've been doing. That all sounds so healthy and well-adjusted. <laughs> <laughs> I have my moments, Brad. Yeah, I have my moments. Well, yeah, no, and it's like, it's like uh, no, I get it. And like, it's, it's an easier said than done kind of thing, I'm sure, maybe, you know, but it's... Uh, it sounds good. I like what you just said. Yeah, and it's sort of, you know, it's like, it, I, and I try to use this in my life, no, no, like, deal with problems when they come up, but worrying about the problems that might come up is a waste of precious energy. Sure. I mean, I, I say this now, you know, like in my safe apartment while I'm juicing, and, you know, and I don't, <laughs> and I don't have any actual problems. Right. Um, but, yeah. Um, okay, so here's another question for you, or something else that I want to bring up, and I don't know if you've heard any, if you've heard this in, you know, from people who've read it or in reviews or interviews or whatever. But one of the things that strikes me about your life that makes it so interesting, like along with the more sensationalistic aspects of it, uh, is the issue of class um, and how your life spans so much or so many different strata, you know, because. Mm-hmm. You know, you're raised by a woman uh, who spent some time on welfare, who was drug addicted uh, in a house on the block that was sort of, uh, you know, almost condemnable or whatever, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, yeah, but it was. At, at the same time, and this is like, this is a part of your mother that like really like uh, I find really heartwarming is that she she really, 
sensed in you uh, great intelligence and she had a lot of pride in you. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, and like that yeah. motherly pride, like from the time you were a baby, like that passage about how you're a baby and you're in the car seat and there's like a beam of sunlight coming in through the window and you're trying to grab it. I mean, that's just beautiful. And like, I, there's, you know, that's the aspect of your mother's humanity that I think really comes through. And if people, you know, it, it, it seems uh, kind of astonishing to me that people couldn't see uh, the goodness in that, or do you know what I'm saying? That people mm-hmm. would, would kind of reduce her to some sort of two dimensional caricature of the bad mother or whatever. But right. I don't know. I found that really moving. And then, um, you know, she gets you into Catholic school, uh, as opposed to the public school system in, uh, it's Danvers, right? Mm-hmm. And then she, um, takes you around to all these interviews at like the top prep schools in the right. Northeast Yeah, and you wind up going to Andover. Right. Uh, so, you know, go big or go home. Yeah. <laughs> she lived that before that was something in the zeitgeist. Um, yeah. But I mean, that's, that's fascinating to me. And, um, you know, then there's the, like, I think the, a part of your mother's character and you can probably speak to this more, um, elaborately than I can, but I think it kind of goes hand in hand with that particular instinct. But, um, the love of movies that she mm-hmm. had and the love and the role that movies played in your family and, um, the way that you describe your mother as someone who so badly wanted an audience and would, would have done so well potentially as like a stage actress, you know, right, right. um, but she had big dreams and she had, I don't know, like all this potential that she never realized, but she sensed that maybe you could do that. And I don't know, there's something beautiful about that. And I'm also fascinated with your experience of, um, the climb, you know, like going from the environment that you were living in to suddenly being at Andover. Mm-hmm. Like, you know. Yeah, no, I, 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 it's, it's a wonderful and kind of poignant place to be. Um, and that I've, I don't really belong in any of the demographics that I've, I've lived in. Um, and it's, 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 it's a real cool thing to be able to move in these different worlds and see, these different places and meet these different people. But at the same time, you know, there's a loneliness that comes with it of not knowing, you know, like I don't really fit in with the, the people who are doing brunch in, in, at the bougie place in Brooklyn, but I kind of do fit in with them and I don't fit in with, um, the people back home who, uh, you know, who watch the Red Sox games religiously and, and, and nothing else. Um, (laughs) and, and, you know, and I, so where do I belong? And, um, you know, and my mother sort of gave that, you know, that conflict was in our life from the beginning, even before I went away to school, and my mother had these delusions of grandeur, but they weren't so deluded because <laughs> she really was this, this bright woman who was uncommonly curious for an uncommonly ambitious, given our surroundings. And she, we didn't, you know, this is before the internet when, all kinds of culture were a click away where you really had to like seek things out. And to a certain extent she, she did, or she, or whatever the closest things that came to us via cable television, via honestly, via HBO, you know, we always had HBO and, um, and that she was able to, she was able to discern, this is a good movie. This is a shit movie. I'm going to expose my daughter to the good movies because that's what I'm watching anyway. And, you know, and that was the way she was able to feed me culture. It was the only thing we had available to us, but that's what she gave me. And, and it was, it was seminal. It was amazing. And, um, it's, you know, some of the happiest memories of my life are watching these amazing movies with my mother and not even realizing 
that this is a special experience that not every kid gets to have. And not, I mean, one, watching movies with your mother, but two, watching these fantastic American films with my mother um, and my stepfather, too. And, um, and that, you know, yeah, and that, that, that's a really sort of a sacred thing that we, that we had that was such a gift for us. Um, but, yeah, I, you know, it's, it's been the class thing is so I, I feel like people aren't, aren't talking about it a lot. So I love that you brought it up. I think that's so cool um, because I just for me, there's this Steinbeckian nobility of the underclass that I see in a lot of American literature. And to me, it's magical fucking realism. I'm like, no, <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, this is this is this 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 noble, this sort of like pure of heart. Uh, like or you, almost like you know, like Jean Valjean, like you know, the good criminal kind of thing. Like this exists in American literary fiction. It's not my experience of reality. It's very poetic, but it's not true. And in fact, I find it insulting. Um, it, and it's not that you know there isn't dignity and integrity and humble sacrifice in you know sort of like post-industrial American lower 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 middle class and lower class culture, but when you turn your literary lens to just that you're missing, you're, you're missing the complete picture, which is really complex and gorgeous and fascinating. And it's people like my mother who are fat and who are vulgar and who are all too happy to screw you over if it's for them to do that and who don't have, you know, and who aren't doing it for some kind of noble reason. Oh, sometimes, sometimes, yes, sometimes not, you know, it's people who are terrified it's other people in our family who were absolutely terrified of three letter words bigger than three syllables, you know, and, but yet still had these, we're still able to say these things that are, have, that contain so much poetic beauty and so much truth and, and, you know, have these voices that are, are worth hearing. And I feel like, you know, that I don't see that represented a lot and that's frustrating to me. And I, and people aren't talking about that a lot and that's frustrating to me. And so I like that you brought that up because, I mean, that's something that I could only sort of touch on because there was just, there was other things going on in my book, but yeah. And that, you know, and then that I, I lived in this world, like I, I grew up in a crack house and my mother sent me to Andover and, but then she would smoke butts in my, she would come to my dorm room and she'd light up a cigarette in my dorm room and I'm 15 years old and I'm like, mom, no, stop, <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble. And she'd be like, who fucking cares? <laughs> you know, she's like, you know, and I was terrified that she would get into like a, a, a fist fight with my dorm counselor if they came in and yelled at me, you know, and, and, you know, and so like it was, that's the complexity of my life. And I, and I, but I feel like I'm not unique in that. I feel like a lot of people who have crossed these imaginary class lines have these ambiguities and have these sort of poignant moments of, of connection and disconnection. And, um, you know, it just, it's different colors and different shapes, but it's all the sort of, it's the same thing. And it's, it's, you know, it's what happens when you leave home. Okay. You know? but, and, and so, okay. And so like, and I totally get it. Like the character, like the caricatures that we often see about like the noble poor, you know, or whatever, uh, right. But what was what was your experience like suddenly brushing shoulders with kids and you know and people generally um, who came from extreme privilege? Like, well, this you- is where drugs came in really handy because, <laughs> because like it was the ultimate democracy in that we all were just like trying to find a bag of weed and a safe place to go smoke it without getting in trouble. And then, but then also because it was Andover, it was this elite academically rigorous school, we all had a lot of homework to do. I mean, minimum six hours a night 
every day of homework to do. And, you know, it was sort of like there was a lot of overachieving potheads and, and alcoholics I mean, or just I shouldn't say it. I shouldn't diagnose other people, just teenagers who want to get high, but also, you know, want to get into Harvard. And so we were really bonded, you know, me, like the other Andover students and I were bonded in this mutual profession of, okay, well, we, well, we have to study for our philosophy exam and, you know, we have to like find this bag of weed and we have to go into the forest to smoke it and then make sure that like our coats are aired out. So when we come back and have to sign in, no one smells it on us and we're not in trouble and, and, you know, and all, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so that was really great. And then, you know, there was something happened at Andover. We were just kids. We were just these like little teenagers and we just needed intimacy and affection and companionship. And we needed to create family that a lot of the stuff that should have been a bigger issue wasn't. Although, it, you know, there were moments when I was very much aware, oh, I am not like these other kids. And there were moments when they were very aware, oh, she's not like us. And those were, those were really poignant and sad and things that I've, I've, I've had to process over time. But they were, they were, they were moments. They weren't, the general, they, you know, they didn't define my life there. They, there were moments like that, but there was a lot of other, um, there, there was so much else going on that was bigger than that. And so, and okay. And you got, and you went through Andover, uh, on largely on scholarship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then not you, a full boat ride, but like 90%. Like, yeah. So like I paid in the end, I paid, you, you know, you could go to community college would be more expensive. Um, would be like way more expensive than what I ended up paying to go to Andover. And then you, and then you went to Oberlin. Mm-hmm. And was that a scholarship too? That was also a scholarship. Um, yeah, not as generous as Andover, but still pretty goddamn generous in that I was able to pay off my college loans just working, working my little jobs um, in my twenties. Um, I did not. I was. I'm one of those Americans that isn't saddled with college debt. Um, so yeah. So Oberlin, which uh, Oberlin College, I did that, I guess, for four years. <laughs> wow, so like you're really well educated, you know? Like those are all good schools, obviously. And then you yeah, to- I, w- I wish I was. I mean, I, I feel like I squandered. <laughs> I, I had so many opportunities to become an educated person, and I squandered them. I'm struggling to catch up now. I'm just sort of. That's how I feel. Yeah, right. And again, I think, yeah, we all feel that way. Like, I wish I could stop time and read about 200 books and (laughs) then reread 200 others that I've actually read, but reread them and then let time continue on. And then I'm sort of like, then I'll be have caught, then I'll have caught up. Well, yeah, like I'm find myself, like I've been reading this book that's like about philosophy. It's like a shorthand version of like all the big moments. Like it's the, Cliff Notes. You're cheating. Yes, I know. Mm-hmm. But I'm just like, I don't, I, just like, I was sitting here and I was like, <laughs> I don't know a fucking thing about like the history of thought and like, what, you know, like I wrote papers on Martin Buber. I couldn't tell you the basic tenets of his philosophy right now. Like I would have to go to Wikipedia and maybe some of it would ring a bell and it's so frustrating because I feel like I could be so much smarter than yeah. I am today. Well, at least I mean, at least we know, right? Isn't that, yeah, right. That's like part of uh, part of the solution. Like the first step is knowing that you have a <laughs> knowing you have a knowing you're stupid, <laughs> knowing that you're a waste. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So okay, so you, I want to, I want to like circle back a little bit to the point where you're in graduate school. You went to uh, Austin, Texas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're you're working. You're drinking, and then eventually you're getting sober. And at the time that you get sober, or like you know, right around that time, you know, and you're in that process, you're writing this book. Um, but you also cut ties with your mother. Is that correct? I did. Yeah. Uh, but uh, a year into living in Austin, Texas, I I just I hit a point with her. She accused me of writing. She thought 
her phone lines are being tapped. Now, as we know from um, recent events um, and and WikiLeaks and all kinds, you know, and Snowden and and Verizon and all the stuff that's coming up, um, wasn't so paranoid of her to think this. But at the time, she thought that her phone lines were being tapped, um, that either the DEA or the FBI, which is just totally insane because I was like, Mom, you're not that important. Um, (laughs) Somebody somebody was um, tapping our phone lines. And she thought I was colluding with these imaginary forces, which was absolutely infuriating. That sort of, I had my own sort of uh, internal meltdown when she thought, when she accused me of ratting her out to some imaginary organization because my whole life had been a secret. You know, there were, like, I, I didn't, there was basic stuff about my life, not even big, big ticket trauma items. I mean, there was basic stuff. I didn't tell anybody just because I was so afraid that she'd, get mad at me. And, um, you know, my whole life had been a secret and now she's accusing me of, of, of being a rat and I completely lost it. And, you know, I remember hanging up the phone with her and thinking, I cannot talk to this woman ever again. I had up, up to that point, I had several therapists and really good friends who had told me like, you need to cut off ties with her. This is really, this is a poisonous relationship. And I'd always say, no, no, no. She's my mother. You don't understand. She's my mother. I can't do that. Um, but I think it was something about the distance. Like I was far away. I was I was almost two thousand miles away from her, and she was at a point where she couldn't come after me because she didn't have the money or the ability to get on a plane and leave home because she was like she was basically a housebound drug addict and she was broke. Um, so I had this sort of physical distance um, that allowed me to finally say, you know, no, I'm far enough away from you that I can say no and it's over. And so. Um, I, I, I sort of mentally divorced her mind. I, you know, more than divorced, I, I said, the way I had to do it was I pretended that she was dead. I was like, this woman is dead, and I'm not going to talk to her anymore because she's dead. And it, and, was, um, it was just yeah. too toxic. And, and like, yeah. forgive me for, like, the armchair psych, but, like, I want to ask if, like, you view it this way. Um, but it seems like, you know, there's something to be noted about the fact that you were uh, getting sober at at around the same time. No, you... no, 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 that, no, it was, that was, I drank for heavily and maybe even more heavily for another couple of years after doing that. after. Okay. So they were like, the two things weren't linked. It wasn't like, I'm, I'm like addicted to this like codependent relationship and no, that's totally wrong. right. No, it, it would be really neat and tidy. It would probably make for a, a, a cleaner book if, you know, I broke off ties with my mother and then like that's the day I got sober. But I, I had to, I had a different process which I had to go through, which is, I had to realize that my drinking was not her fault, was not was not caused by her, was not, you know, that like, nobody was refilling my drinks but me, that uh, I had the mess, of the emotional mess that was my life, I had created, she didn't create, um, and that, in, you know, and, and that's a really empowering realization to come to that, okay, well, if I made this mess, then I'm, I'm the only one who can clean it up. And so, I, she, so definitely severing ties with her is a huge, huge part of me eventually becoming sober, but chronologically, these were not the same moment. Well, and then uh, I read, there is a piece by Charles McGrath in the New York Times about you. It's kind of like a mini profile. Yeah. And I I think that's where I read, there was a quote from your mother in the piece. And I found it really, again, I felt like there's something about your mom that gets to me. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But there's something really sweet where she said she didn't lie. She told the whole story. You know, like she, you would expect someone who had been exposed to say, you know, that's a lot of BS or she, you know, she shaded the truth, but your mom said she told the truth. And I found that, I found that touching. Yeah. I mean, 
and what he didn't put in there in that article, and I found out from, you know, it, it's so funny that Chip McGrath has my mother's phone number and I don't. Um, he has Chip what? McGrath, Chip McGrath has my mother's phone number and I don't. I mean, he, you know, he had, he had to call her as due diligence for that article. Um, he asked me for her phone number and I said, I don't have it. I haven't spoken to this woman in years. I wouldn't even know how to get it. Um, and he, you know, just as a good journalist and he got her phone number and he called her and, um, he, so there was more to the conversation than made it into the article. But, um, he also asked her like, what did you think about the book? And she said that she thought I did a super job and yeah. And he didn't put that in the article for whatever reason. But after I, but he, you know, he told my agent who told me, and that was one of those moments. It was like, I don't care what any critic says. I don't care what any review says. I don't care what any reader says. My mom thought I did a good job. I was going to say, that should be the blurb on the paperback. <laughs> I know. I know. No. Like nothing. And there's nothing you can say about that book that will mean more to me than that. Right. That's super sweet. And, you know, it's just, there's just so much... Uh... Life is so messy, you know? And yeah, like, I, yeah. I'm, it's great, though. I love it. You know, you got to kind of dive in and just love being in the mess. Right. I'm trying. I find You have myself, a two-year-old. You must know. You uh, must know. <laughs> I know. But the thing about it is that, like, there's, that's part of it, is that, like, you're a parent and you're like, what have I brought her into and how do we right. fix this? And, like, you just have to accept the, the crazy along with the beauty a little bit. You got to rejoice in it, too. Like, acceptance will kind of get – that gets exhausting. I mean, it's in the – like, at the end of the day, that's sort of the thing that gets you through the day, of course, but – you know, it's sort of like, wow, what a fucking spectacular mess we live in. <laughs> right. You know, and, and just and just smile at it. Um, right. If you if you can. You got it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's I think that's correct. I think you do yeah. have to you have to find some way to, um, not let it get you down. Embrace it. <laughs> Give it up. Yeah, yeah. Embrace it. Embrace it. Yeah. Um. So, relationships. Uh, I'm curious, you know, like having been raised this way and having in a lot of ways transcended so much difficulty that I think, um, would have potentially crushed most people. Like I find you very impressive in terms of how much you've been able to overcome. I don't know if that gives you any kind of extra confidence, but, um, I feel like maybe it should, you should feel pretty, you should feel pretty badass. <laughs> I think I would be, I would be like, you know, uh, completely shriveled up if I'd been through half of what you've been through, but I guess you, you can never know. But, um, you know, when it comes to, uh, like how you relate with other people, um, mm-hmm. you know, do you want to have kids? Like if you come out of a family yeah. situation like this, like how do you, negotiate that part of your life has it been difficult have you really had to attack it with like you know therapy or whatever like how how do you do that yeah i've had lots of therapy <laughs> in fact as soon as this phone call is over like that's where i'm headed um is to, is to my, my my monday therapy appointment um and i also have wonderful wonderful friends um who just are who listen and 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 are walking me through um you know, a new way of living. And, you know, some of them in the sober community, some of them just good friends that I've had for a long time who just teach me what it means to love unconditionally and teach me what it means to get through conflicts without, you know, lighting lighting people's houses on fire. And, <laughs> and, and you know, they, like these basic things that I, I had I had to learn as an adult that most, a lot of people learned, you know, when they were younger. And I'm just learning for the first time now. And it's good. And I think, you know... Uh, Hard times have different effects on different people. It can either it can make you cold and closed off, or it can make you softer and more vulnerable. And 
for better or for worse, I feel like I'm softer and more vulnerable, um, which means I get my heart broken, I think, more than the average person <laughs> um, because I, I tend to sort of dive in to uh, – even friendships, I, I, I tend to dive in with just so much love and so much hope and so much expectation and, and um, you know, in the world is a messy place. But in the end, um, you know, I try, I, try to, I try to connect with other people from this place of vulnerability because that's, that's at the core of us. That's what we all are um, is, you know, we're, we're, these, we're these tender little hearts. <laughs> Well, no, oh I, I, know, you know, I, I feel that I feel even the same assholes, way. Even, even, even these like hard, rigid people that you run into in your daily life and you're like, what's wrong with you? You know, just sort of, you know, just knowing like you don't know what their pain is. You don't know what their life is. You don't, you know, and I think a lot of people who meet me don't, they have no idea um, what I've been through. And, and why would they? Um, unless I know who I am and read my book. But, um, and so, you know, it's easy to judge and, you don't know. And so when you approach other people in your life, whether it's an intimate relationship or just someone you have to work with from this place of, of vulnerability, um, I don't know, like it, it, it makes, it's, it's hard. It's really hard and it's really painful, but it brings a lot more peace to the world. I think. Yeah. I think it's more, maybe more human. Yeah. And I think like, I don't know. Cause there's some certain aspects of, um, your personality that come through in the book that I could relate to, because I think we might have a similar bearing, like even if it maybe is comes from a different place or whatever, Mm -hmm. but like you're very self-deprecating. And I think there are certain people who have that tendency and it's like, it it comes around to vulnerability, like making Mm -hmm. yourself vulnerable, not only as like a self-protective measure, but also I think like part of the reason I always have done it, I think um, is like, I love, I, I feel like it opens people up or makes people feel safer yeah. Uh, if you're like, it's disarming, you know, it's sort of like, Hey, we're just people, right. We're just, we're just ugly, screwed up, confused <laughs> people. It's okay. Well, you know? well, no, but you're very, like, you're very open, um, like bracingly open a lot of the time, uh, about your own appearance. Like you're really hard on yourself, <laughs> you know, like in certain turns in this book. Um, and well, the, the tyranny of beauty, I can't live with it. I can't, it's too much. Yeah. I found, I found it. I found it great though, because like I just I hadn't I haven't seen a ton of that, or maybe yeah. I don't know. There's something about it that I found uh, sort of awesome. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> like the part, yeah. I mean, I'll let people read, but there's like yeah. the part in the in the beauty salon, you know, where they. I was a really. Now here's the deal. I was a really, really. I have pictures to prove it. I was a hideous little kid, <laughs> and I was a hideous little kid in a family where all the other little kids were gorgeous it wasn't like you know so it wasn't like oh i was the plain jane among the the pretty kids or i was the 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 homely one and everybody else was plain it was like the disparity between me my brother my sister me my cousin it was huge i mean like it was just sort of like oh god what what who let that thing in the house (laughs) that thing was me (laughs) so Uh, well it's been great talking with you and uh you know, I, I wish you well, not only with this book, but also with, uh, I, I guess you're working on fiction now. Is that right? I am. I'm, I'm working on a novel, yes. Um, but I wish you well with that. I wish you well with everything. And the Thank ju- you. The, the sobriety, the juice cleanse, um, <laughs> the dog, everything. And um, I don't know. I appreciate the time. Okay. Thanks, Brad. All right. That's it for now. That is Domenica Ruda. You can go get her book. It is available now from Spiegel and Grau, and it is called With or Without You. With or without you. Why can't I hear myself?
Can I hear myself now? Hang on one second. Let me check the headphones. Hello? 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 Yeah, I think that's good. So that is Domenica Ruda. Uh, wasn't she wonderful? The book, once again, a memoir, With or Without You, available now from Spiegel and Grau. You can find her online at DomenicaRuda.com. She's on Twitter, where her handle is at Domenica Mary. And I believe she's also on the Facebook. Don't forget to follow this show on Twitter at Other People Pod. It also has a Facebook presence, and the official website is OtherPeoplePod.com. And uh, while you're at it, don't forget to pick up the new one from Jessica Anya Blau. It's called The Wonder Bread Summer, and it's available now from Harper Perennial. Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. Don't forget to get the app, the free official Other People app, the official app of this program. It's available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You don't have to do a thing. It just happens. Uh, You can also access premium content and the show's full archives via the app. So go get it. The app itself is free. So uh, otherwise, you know, uh, it's been one of those days. I've been fixated on things. The sun, the heat, the cancer, the discomfort, uh, people telling me over and over again that they're not worried about me. I could be misreading things. Uh, You know, I don't discount that possibility, but for the moment, I don't think that's the case. I don't think so. I think people tell you that they're not worried about you when they don't want to worry about you which is actually kind of ingenious because it sounds like an expression of bullish confidence when in fact it is a flat rejection of your uh, quagmire. (laughs) It's a quiet severing of any lingering feelings of mutual responsibility. Please remember that Bertrand Russell survived a plane crash at age 76 and that Carson McCullers in the last years of her life suffered a stroke, paralysis, a heart attack, breast cancer, and a brain hemorrhage. That's it for now. Thank you for being here. Thank you for giving me your kind attention. Thank you to Jessica. Thank you to Domenica. I am now going to go huddle in the shade for the remainder of the afternoon. And uh, I want you to know that I'm worried about you. I am sincerely and in uh, in a heartfelt way worried about you and your very uncertain future.